Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are back for more with our guest, Jason Badger. He's a lighting and theatrical effects designer with over 25 years of experience in theme parks, on major events, on television, and more. Here's the second half of our interview. So you mentioned the area development a couple times, specifically the one for Galaxy's Edge, but I would like to hear a little bit more just about what that is and where the direction for how the areas are going to look under different times of day, under different times of year comes from. Right. So uh, Galaxy's Edge was was interesting because we had that huge rock work formation. The designer, uh, Ken Lennon, he knew that he wanted it to do something at sunset. We obviously wanted it to do something at night. What exactly was it going to look like, we didn't know for sure, except that we didn't want it to look like Cars Land, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't, want, didn't want it to look like Monument Valley, right? That was, that was the big thing. Don't make it look like Cars Land. Okay. So so don't make it look awesome and sexy. Oh crap. Because, <laughs> I mean that's that's pretty impressive, dude. Well, don't make it look exactly something like exactly like you if you turn your back, you can like, oh yeah, it's just Cars Land, but yeah. over here in space. Is it in space or is it in Utah? <laughs> right? Okay. So, which by the way, same team, like Ken and I did Cars Land and and he was also the designer for all that stuff outside at Star Wars as well. So, he's excellent at being able to hide lighting everywhere and that those big rock work formations and like i don't know how he i know how he does it but i don't know how he does it like working with the rock work team i'm like you know there's so many fixtures out there and it's really hard you have to try hard on a lot of the stuff to try and see an actual point source and if you if you do it's because you know you're in a place we never thought you'd be or something got knocked out of alignment like like, that's pretty much it So when it came to that rock work, so it's so big that it would take a couple of nights to recolor the whole thing, starting at one end and moving to like four different places where I could see a big portion of it to color. it. And my direction for him was, he's like, well, I think, you know, it wants to be cool as in color cool wise. And I think we want to have the moonlight change over the course of the evening as well. Also, you know, the sun setting over here, I also want you to try a sunset thing as well. It's like, all right, well, the sunset part is easy. Like, we'll just do, you know, sunsetty colors, fine, coming from the right direction. But then as far as, like, the color was concerned, I played with a bunch of different stuff, you know. And so I would go through and I would I would color, the, you know, the whole, you know, there's probably about 120 fixtures that are, that are at least that are watching that, that, that thing that are spread, you know, across the entire rock work. And so I would, I would spend, you know, like a night, like going across the whole thing and coloring it. And then we would look at it, um, the timing that I had set. Um, and so I probably changed it about eight times, the coloring of like what it actually looked like before I ended up at where it was. And um, as also the timing. So what happens is that before sunset happens, we get a trigger and which which starts sunset basically so the sunset is already there you know as it's getting dark and then i start a whole timeline where you know the sunset fades 
and then moonlight starts and like you know it, it kind of slowly the color slowly shifts from one side to the other over two and a half hours three hours uh, at night like it, it slowly is is morphing and changing and so playing with that timing we would watch different color variations uh on how it looked and uh yeah so it probably took about eight different you know like i tried like a purple look i tried a green look and then I ended up where it ended up now, which is, you know, a, a very vibrant, you know, blue. And every time we looked at it, you know, he's like, well, you know, like this is uh, maybe this is too bright over here. And, you know, the color is not quite working over here. So it was a lot of, you know, back and forth of trying to refine, you know, uh, what felt best for the land. Because it also had to contrast to the warmness because everything else is a very warm incandescent and the rest of the land is, you know, so contrasting that and still trying to make it feel like it's in space. Like it's not quite, you know, what you'd see on earth. Um, and then finally, um, just because of the age that we live in now, like I, I did do a lot of iPhone tests on a bunch of areas to see like how it would, how it would read when you take a picture. The way I actually found out about you originally was years ago, I was trying to figure out a way to solve a problem on MA2 and I came across your macro file, you know, where you listed all the macros in it. You mentioned listed what they do. And I was like, oh, this will solve the problem. And that file really inspired me to sort of take macros in a whole new direction on MA2. And clearly you're deep into coding on Mosaic. How did you become a tinkerer? So, um, so, on M so especially in, in regards to MA2, when we were doing World of Color, there were a lot of instances where, um, was dealing with so many channels of things, of fixtures that that I needed quicker ways to offset, to do timing changes, uh, and that sort of thing, what have you. That 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 that's where my macro started getting really complicated because I was trying to automate all these because all these you know these channels of things you know in relation to the water and the lighting and and so that that's where it started and then. Because I found that those the macros were so quick and powerful, I used them a lot to do for when we were when we were turning over the show for turnkey operation type stuff to automate a lot of because they were they had to be able to navigate through different versions of the show. You know, it's like, well, how do you do that so that they can use the same buttons and so their interface looks the same? And so when they hit enable, it doesn't matter what show they're running, it'll enable the correct thing. So that's where it started compounding. And then on corporate theater, sometimes there's a lot of downtime where you're waiting while executives are rehearsing. And so that 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 gives me even more opportunity to like I start playing with things and I start coding Lua, you know, and like like it was it was an instance like that where because there's actually Lua scripting in MA where I knew a show I was doing, I was gonna need the ability to send UDP strings out, which the MA does not do natively. So I figured out that like you could do it in using their Lewis scripting to be able to to send that sort of stuff out. So, but but again, it was it was all made during the downtime where you know like I you know it's like well the perfect instance for Mac was like I do this all the time. It takes a lot of keystrokes. How do I make it faster? <laughs> and that that's what they're all born out of. Um, okay. You know, and and like that that high roller wheel in Vegas. Like there's these crazy macros that that do tons of setup and reference other macros to make sure that things get in the right mode. And, you know, a lot of my macros rewrite 
other macros, you know, to to be able to to function properly. So, yeah, it's it's just a lot of, you know, sometimes just sitting there on some shows sometimes. So just with nothing but time on my hands, you know, hitting the go button once every three hours that, you know, I start just messing around with stuff just to see how I can either automate a process. I do a lot and just want to make faster or just, you know, just for my own, you know, amusement, just to see if I could do it, which is, which is something that I did with the UDP stuff is like, there's got to be a way to do this. There's got to be a way. Mm -hmm. Well, I specifically want to thank you because you inspired me to sort of think bigger about macros. It made some automated things that I programmed much easier. Um, What inspired you to share it all, all the work you've done? Well, I'm not worried that if someone gets my show file, I'm going to lose work. You know, because because I get hired because of me and my personality, not because I have a macro that works awesome. So uh, I always appreciate it when I can find anything out there that helps me achieve what I need to. So, you know, I spent a lot of time on some of these macros. It's like, well, why not share it? You know, because it's going to help someone else out. And it'll just my my goal is, yeah, we do these shows, but we do these shows and we work these long hours, but when you're in a show, also, I want to get the show done. <laughs> like, if you know what I mean, I, I, I want to, doing a show is not my whole life. I, I would like to also finish working and then do the rest of my life, right? You know, like be at home or be with my cat or be with my wife or whatever, right? So anything that will help me get the gig done faster sometimes <laughs> is is, you know, I think it's something that can be shared. If it helps anyone else, like, get out of there sooner, then, like, I think that's worth it. Got it. Stepping away from theme parks uh, and into the sort of rest of your life. Yes. Um, so I saw these photos back in 2010 of this Ring Cycle production that you programmed at the LA Opera, and I want to ask you about that show. It was crazy. I mean, <laughs> like, well, I mean, that was like the go big or go home season for LA Opera, right? Yeah, it was crazy. And uh, and I should say that I programmed the video for that show. The house programmer, Ryan, uh, programmed the lighting. I was brought in because uh, Brian Gale did the light, you know, was the lighting designer for it. And uh, what was notable about that one is, is I had 16 DL3s. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what the, the bulk I was there for. The DL3s were were mapped to the rake of the stage so um what i was doing is i was programming those and the bulk of what we were doing was um taking occam fryer's art and projecting it down over the stage so you have all this custom artwork that he had created that we were projecting down over the stage um it wasn't from my point of view it wasn't too complicated because like you know it's a a cue every hour right <laughs> you know so the hardest part for me was now there's a ton that, of work to do up front and then after that yeah and you know and and it was it was stressful to a point where when things did need to change during programming there was not a lot of understanding of the process of what it took to create said look. So for instance, um, we were going to try doing a rainbow um, with the DL threes across the back of the, uh, the back wall of the stage. 
And so I needed to ad hoc, like quickly create a map of the DL3. You know, the DL3s, you know, are the, the you know, they laboriously move around and try to get them in the position and then put up yeah. the grid so you can match them up and then do the keystoning, right? You know, it's a process. Yeah. Well, and, then, and how many and how many parts was the how many how many were you using to make that to make that sixteen? So you were using all sixteen for that specific. Oh my yeah. god! Okay. Yes. So it's a process, right? Yeah. Take some time. It's like so sixteen the part came, blend. Yes. The, the the ask came in from the director, you know, Occam. And, I'll see you in two days. <laughs> and, yeah. So the ask came in, he's sitting there. It's like, all right, you know, and then Brian was like, all right, you know, can, can you map that? And like, well, cause then the end result was, we're just going to like put up the rainbow, right? You know, no big deal. The rainbow doesn't yeah. do anything. So I get to, you know, I put up the grid and I start, you know, and I'm probably about five, eight minutes in the director in broken German just flies off the handle. What is grid? What is grid? I said rainbow rainbow <laughs> not grid you know i'm like uh and brian's like don't worry about mapping it just put it on you know and it's so it's like you know like it's not you know lined up at all it was fine because he saw what he wanted to see which is that he didn't want it probably because it wasn't mapped but you know still you know but so that there were moments like that where it was challenging with the technology because like it's not fast, <laughs> which is which is funny because opera is not fast, except for when they ask for something and then it needs to be fast. Yeah. <laughs> so that was mostly my experience of that was 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 fits and starts of that on that on that entire show. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the first two that I did, I, you know, and those are the only operas I've ever done um, were those there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience, to say the least. How did Brian end up on the show? He had a connection to LA Opera via one of the staff lighting designers there at the time, uh, Trevor Burke. And um, I think that he introduced them to, um, they had cursory had known each other. So they, you know, he, he went to several interviews in Germany with Occam uh, over it, uh, oh, wow. just, based on, just based upon some connections he had uh, through the uh, LA theater scene. I understand this is that there's a lot of things about that about this project that are unique, but what were you able to take with you from that project? Well, having never done opera before, I didn't know anything about that world at all. And so I learned a lot about Neither did Ockham Fryer. <laughs> I learned a lot about like what what it meant. I mean, well not what it meant, but like what the culture of opera was. You know, it was a big learning experience of that, like you know, like what white walkers are, uh, what a, a bow probe is. So, you know, like, you know, like all those opera, you know, standbys, like I, I had no idea about. So mostly it was, it was just a, a lesson in what opera was. Okay. And I, and I, you know, you also do the curtain shows at the El Capitan theater. It's a very different type of theater, but it seems well loved. I'll, I'll say that. Well, it's, it, the El Capitan stands for my relationship with studio special events. Um, which Brian uh, brought me into, where we would do uh, a lot of those big movie premieres, like uh, when we did Pirates of the Caribbean premiere at Disneyland. Uh, we did, well, they did right before I did. They did like a huge premiere for Pearl Harbor at Pearl Harbor, you know, things like <laughs> things of that nature. And uh, I've done a lot of movie premieres for them. And their home base is the El Capitan. The El Capitan is owned by Disney. The theater is, and they 
you know, now they hold pretty much 100% of their um, their movie premieres at that theater now. And I've been doing stuff for them since uh, 97 when the first thing I did for them was actually in New York when we did the premiere of Hercules and uh, the electrical parade to Times Square. So there was a sh- so we actually did the technically the first Disney show at the New Amsterdam Theater. There was a, a special they showed Hercules there, and they also did like a little pre-show before before uh, the movie. So I did that with That's Brian. Wonderful. So that was that was the first. So I watched the electrical parade pass by from um, a, a very decrepit old office window in the New Amsterdam. Uh, you know, up, up high, there's, there's like an old, old feeder that's up on top inside the new Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. There's like, you know, up at the top and it was, it was all chawed up and uh, completely, you know, uh, gutted out inside there when I was there. But that was the first show that I worked with them on. And then, uh, the, the first curtain show I did wasn't until 99 for the Tarzan show for the Tarzan movie. Um, and since then, you know, I've been doing curtain shows for them periodically. So why don't you tell us what those are? For the most part, they're, you know, they've always been like, you know, the characters come out, they wave for 17 minutes and do like a little variety show, and then they show the movie. So it's like a little added bonus that you get with your movie ticket where you get to see a Disney stage show with, you know, various rubber-headed Disney characters come out, um, sometimes with live singers, and, and do a little bit. And they range anywhere from like a little five minute, a character comes out in waves or Ariel does a, a live action Ariel, you know, does some interaction with the crowd to all the way, all the way to like a full dance singing 17 minute, you know, multi-act little variety show uh, before the movie, which is pretty cool. It's like kind of unheard of. Like it's not something you see all the time, you know, you, you don't see like a, like a full, you know, laser light show before Star Wars anywhere else except for at the El Capitan. Um, so it's kind of two parts. So they they have like the, the pre-show, but then they also have a curtain show, which they've had three curtain shows uh, since I've been working for them. Uh, there was the first one that was actually created by Ken Billington, actually did the, the, the first one. The second one, which had elements of the of the first version uh, with, you know, it's all curtain reveal kind of stuff where there's, you know, first there's, you know, a drop flies out and then there's a picturesque curtain and then that curtain flies out and there's another, you know, like a mylar curtain, et cetera. And then it's just lighting and music changes. Uh, the second version, which Brian Gale did, they had, they built this mural backlit mural basically that had leds all over it that did you know a bunch of changes to it so like the first curtain would fly out and the second curtain fly out and then this one would be behind it and do a bunch of changes down to the third version which is what i did which is you know it's you know same thing you know lighting changes curtain flies out and then um there's another curtain that has video projection on it that flies out and reveals a big swarovski uh uh crystal uh, drop, which is the, the same. They actually they got that drop. It's the same one they used on the Oscars for uh, several years. So Swarovski um, gave them that drop. So they so you know, and then that, that goes through a bunch of changes. And then and then there's a there's a mural that's behind it. And sometimes they project a video project map onto that mural, kind of 
uh, telegraphing the movie that you're going to see is like when we opened, you know, Mary, it was Mary Poppins returns. So like her silhouette kind of like floated in and out, you know, and then that flies away and reveals and then you watch the movie. So that's basically how those work. Okay. And and what systems do you use to make those? And I, I imagine they have to be just as bulletproof as the stuff at the theme parks. So they're treated, exactly. Yeah, it's treated like a theme park kind of operation where uh, different programmers do come in and do the, the character stage shows. Um, uh, but the, uh, but that show stays the same. So it's like, so, you know, whenever a guest programmer comes in, you know, you just make sure, all right, stay in your lane, don't touch any of this, you know, like this is all locked and then you change all this. So, um, that system has evolved through the years. Um, it started on an expression. Then it went to, uh, an EOS and it was on a, it was on an EOS rack mount. And then its latest iteration now is on, uh, is running is MA2, uh, on MA3 hardware. All right. Um, and then there's additionally on that show, there's also a paradigm on that show as well. Uh, to trigger uh, some static looks, so like the so that the um, projectionist can recall certain items, and those are triggered by a paradigm. It stays completely away from the from the MA system. With all this talk of theater, you know, I I've noticed that a decent number of the people who work on the kind of theme park stuff that you do, this is that you know the kind that tells a story rather than focusing on just physical thrills have either a love of theater or a background in theater or themselves practicing theater artists. Tell me about that intersection and how theater people have found their way into this end of the business. Yeah, well, I mean, 100% of the lighting designers who work for Imagineering came from theater. All of us, all of us who came from theater. And it, it and have evolved into architectural designers. That's usually what happens is they, they get, you know, I... I can't think of too many instances where we just directly hired an architectural line designer. Pretty much everyone who's in the department is, has been a theatrical line designer of some sort or, or, you know, um, a theatrical technician. And, um, yeah, so there, uh, there are a big contingent of our scenic designers and painters and who have just all come from theater. And it, I mean, it makes sense. Because, you know, at, at its core, the stuff that we're doing at Disney is very theatrical. So why not? Why would you not, you know, uh, pull from that, that, you know, that talent base? So, um, you know, and with it comes all – it's funny how, you, how I've seen it happen where we, we hire a theatrical line designer. And because of what we do, they become architectural line designers, but with a theater background. So – happens is you get you get these people over the years all of a sudden now get really excited about a wall mount <laughs> you know like a wall <laughs> sconce, you know like i found this coolest sconce it looks really neat it's like what does it do well nothing it just like lights up it's just like a you know <laughs> uh, how they how they evolve you know from it and then when they and then you know they'll be doing you know this architectural stuff for so long that when they they get a gig where they actually get to sit in a theater and do, uh, you know, an actual like theatrical cue to cue attraction. You, you mean like Festival of the Lion King? Yeah, like that. Or um, we did a show some years back uh, called Mickey's Philhar Magic, which is a 3D show, and um, we cued it theatrically. You know, we we sat in a theater, we had a lighting board set up, and we cued the show like you would cue a any old you know theatrical show. 
I love that show. <laughs> it is pretty great. It was it was a lot of heartache on that show though for me though. It it was the first time we used a whole hog three. Mm-hmm. And uh and enough said. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it was it was it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> you see this right here? Oh uh, right yeah. Here? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see that that fake ad someone made about the Hog Three? I I have it. I see. Oh good. It. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. A touring LD. I know, man. That is his favorite thing ever. I think I think I have a copy that that's so fresh. That that was so fresh when that yeah I got that like uh, whoever created it. I still don't know who created it, but. Uh, I do remember exactly when I got it, and it was exactly the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what is it? What's it running on now? It is still running on Whole Hog Three, and it's written. Not only is it we we have we still we still have some attractions are still running on that. Um, all of the Mickey Philhar magics are running on Whole Hog Three. You know, after Brad Schiller stepped in and started laying down the law, it got a lot better. Uh, there was another attraction I was programming almost concurrently where I was using it, where it was rough. It was rough. Um, the original. Tower of Terror in California also used to run on it. Oh, okay. That's the one that became um, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Right. And when when we did that, it changed to Mosaic. Um, and let's talk about television. Yes. Uh, you've done a lot of television. Uh, you've done stuff at single camera. You've done multi camera. You've done live to broadcast. Yep. It's been a while though. <laughs> well, so I have I have to say I was looking at your TV credits, and right next to each other. Going from the sublime to the ridiculous, you had a night with Bruce Springsteen for CBS and MTV Europe, and then the video shoot for the immortal hit, Hot Action Cops, Fever for the Flavor. Oh, yeah. So you've really been, you've you've done a lot of diverse stuff. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing a film, I remember doing a a music video shoot. It was the same guy. I, I, I hooked up with those guys for a little bit where we were doing those music video, like, because I did like Britney Spears and like that one and another one all for the same like group of people. And I remember doing one shoot in front of the, the Odyssey restaurant at LAX, you know, the big iconic. Yeah. Like we, we did the whole shoot in front of there. And because they only had money to do one setup, well, not really one setup, but like one night, like they did. Uh, so they did, you know, the, a shot with like the thing in the background, but then they did like a couple green screen shoots, but all outside because they they didn't have any more money to do like a studio shoot. So they brought all the green screen all outside. So like so we, we we did like a full setup with a stage and then we went around into the alley where there was like a green screen setup and we did all the green screen shoots <laughs> on the same night behind the thing. It was insane. Uh yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did some like really interesting like music video type shoots around that in that same era there. And it's just, you know, some people that I met. But yeah, so um the Bruce Springsteen thing came about because since 2002 I've been working with Jeff Rabbits. Um Oh, okay, well that explains a lot. Doing all so I've been with rare occasion where Mike Capella has done it. I've done every Springsteen tour since 2000 since The Rising. Um I programmed for Rabbits. Um that was the first, and that was the first show I ever worked with Rabbits on. And the reason I was brought in on that is because he had a new uh, lighting director who I had met in a previous show with Brian Gale. So he had recommended me um, as his programmer because the other programmer had moved on, who was uh, Brad Malkus, and uh, 
so yeah, so on the rising, that was the first time I was on, and then we just and that that uh, Barcelona shoot was from the rising tour actually. So it was it was in that same year that we moved on to that. How did you meet Jeff? It was cold from that uh, lighting director who was the new lighting director for Springsteen, who I had worked. He was master electrician on a show that I did with a. It was an ill-fated show that that uh, I did with him. Um, uh, it was going to be a tour. It was a show called Rocket Power Live. It was a kids show on Nickelodeon, and it was a BMX skating show, um, hour and a half show, kids show, arena show. It lasted two cities. Wow. Um, and, and then uh, through a combination of the show being untourable uh, because of how the scenic was built and because uh, Clear Channel decided to shut down that division of their company. So it was twofold. It was going to open that division and it ended up closing that division. There was a, there was a division called Clear Channel Kids. And that was, and this was going to kick it off and it ultimately doomed it and only lasted two cities. <laughs> wow. But soon after that, uh, that guy, uh, Todd Ritchie, got the lighting director gig um, with Springsteen, mostly because of their relationship with Morpheus. Okay. Um, he had recommended me to uh, Jeff. That's awesome. Jeff has played a big part in a lot of a lot of amazing things. Yeah, so I most of the TV that I've done has been through uh, both Jeff and through the other designer uh, I work with predominantly now, uh, Manny Treason. So like Manny and I uh, do all the Xbox stuff together, you know, every year. Can we talk about Disneyland sixty? Did yeah. one of those guys design that? No, I, so the reason I was involved in that is because of they for the Idina Menzel thing. Uh, segment they wanted to use the world of color fountains as their backdrop i see and because i'm the fountain de designer for you know that show um they pulled me in to create something new for them to be in sync with her you know singing with an orchestra in front of the the fountains there got it uh, additionally they also the other involvement i had with that particular special is uh for about six years we supported we had these things at disney that were like uh light up Mickey hats that uh, were infrared synced to certain shows across all our resorts. So um, working with the guys at R and D, I uh, I uh, programmed Python. <laughs> you had to program Python to, to get those things to work. Um, to program um, a bunch of different fireworks shows and things like World of Color and whatnot that would sync up the hats to the show. So like actually like write cues like so that your hat could like do color changes and everything with the show. That's cool. Yeah. In fact, World of Color still does. Like if you still have one of those hats, World of Color uh, still works that way. It's an awesome concept. And I sort of wonder why it stopped. The problem was is that the, the electronics are still too expensive. So they couldn't get the price down to a point where people, people were going to buy a Mickey hat or going to buy a Mickey hat. But, but if they have a choice between one that costs this much and, and one that costs this much, they're going to go with this one. And they, they just couldn't get the cost. We just couldn't get the cost down enough to make it so that it was just ubiquitous, you know, so it's just no big deal. I hope that it does actually come back in some form because we always sell we sell these light up toys all the time. And the, the thinking was, is that hopefully we could get the cost down so that you didn't have to choose to get the light up sword that had the, the smarts in it. 
It's just that the light up sword would always would just have the smarts in it. You know? Everyone that you sell will have it. So maybe one day we'll get there. It's just that it's just those the, the the two chips were just so expensive. You know that you just couldn't get them. Just couldn't get them down. You know, in price enough. Yeah, I got that. You know, it's a good point. If you could build them into every pair of Mickey ears, and then the price isn't appreciably different from the from what it was last year, then there's no problem. But yeah, it's right. What have you brought from your other work to television, and what have you brought from television to your other work? Uh, I always these days, and it's because of Jeff Rabbits and and Manny Treason. I always, whenever I'm queuing anything that's live, uh, I always have an eye toward making sure that whatever I'm doing isn't going to blow out any camera. <laughs> you know, and, and like uh, on on Rabbits's any show that Rabbits has done for um, Springsteen. It's always lit with TV in mind, even if it's not going to be broadcast. Because the one place it will be broadcast is on DVD in Bruce's dressing room the night after. And so so Jeff lights it for TV so that when Bruce reviews the show, it looks good on camera. Okay. And so th- there's a lot of instances of that where I'll, always in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking like, maybe I should double up and put 15 lights on the back of someone's head, you know, in a tight beam. Maybe I'll cheat and put it at the floor, beaming in behind them and maybe not on them. It's, you know, it's, it's that kind of mindset that I, every now and then I think about only because I've been trained to like, no, don't put those all on their head, you know, or, you know, that's, sort of yeah. you know, don't put, don't put all 30 Sharpies. <laughs> on the aimed exactly at the person maybe you cheat and put it on the floor behind them got it and you mentioned world of color tell me about fountains how did you get into doing fountains what what is i mean i don't, I don't know anything about fountains so what does it even mean to do fountains I, well, yeah so i you know i at disneyland you know i'd always been called upon if there was something weird or unique that needed to be programmed they would call on me from time to time i programmed the giant animatronic dragon that we put in at Fantasmic, you know, like 10 years ago. So they thought to ask me to, you know, like, hey, I had programmed a fountain in front of Hong Disneyland. There's a big fountain that's out in front of there. And I had programmed it on a lighting console. And so the team came to me like, hey, we're thinking about doing this crazy show. Um, We don't want to do it on any sort of weird proprietary fountain controller. We were thinking of doing it on a lighting controller. It's like, let's probably, we can probably do that, you know. Um, so I got involved in it about four years beforehand doing minor tests. Um, probably about two years out, we, we put the whole thing in previs. We put it into ESP vision and, uh, that, 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 has, was, that has fountain visualization. Uh huh. Oh. And it, the version did at the time, it does the current vision doesn't anymore. If I was going to do fountains these days, I would, the one that seems really great now is Depends. The German company, uh, Synchronorm, has one that's really great for fountains. It does fountains and lighting pretty great. Anyway, um, so about two years out, on an MA1, I, w- I patched the, the fictional plot of what we thought the fountains might look like. I started playing around with how I might control them. Like At first, I like separated them out because the, the L- every fountain had its own LED fixture. So I separated it out. So I had, if you wanted to grab the... LED for this fountain, you had to type in a separate number. I found it was way too much groups and entering numbers, so I married them together. So, like now, when you grab a fountain, it grabs, it's like an all packaged in moving light that just creates water. 
and light. So when you say this fountain at full, water comes out, and then you grab the LED and you mix the color that you want, but it all gets packaged, it all gets recorded as a single fixture. Got it. So there was a lot of testing and figuring out how the most efficient way to program that would be beforehand. And then finally, when we landed on what the rig was going to be, we then put it into the system again. I didn't pre-program anything, but again, I was just like training myself how, and they allowed me the time on their dime to figure out how to best program the system in an efficient way. And uh, it worked out (laughs) when we got out in the field. The first version of the show took us four and a half months to program, um, mostly because we, we kept changing what we thought the show might be until the end. What do you, um, what do you mean by that? Well, we programmed a whole thing of the show, the whole pass of the show, and then reviewed it about a month and a half out and decided that like half of the show didn't quite have the heart in it. So we shuffled the show around and then changed a couple segments. So that obviously that extended the amount of time that it took us to do the whole show. You know, if something's not working, you sadly, you, you know, need to delete it. So there was a couple instances where we deleted something, you know, like we had a whole part at the beginning of the show where we were trying to introduce uh, a fountain as a character in the show, but it was too abstract and it didn't make sense. So I had spent like several nights on it, on this whole sequence, but in the end, unless you have like a program <laughs> that told you, like we just couldn't get the concept across. So we threw it all out. Kill your darlings, they say. Yep, exactly. Um, but now these days, I didn't do the last version of the show, which was a Halloween version. Um, but all the previous versions, they would usually take about six to eight weeks to do a version of the show. And then pulling it all together, you know, the theater and the spectacle and the fountains and even looking good on camera. Tell me about World of Color and the construction of it and your interaction with it because it seems like it must have been different from a lot of the other projects you've done right yeah yeah it, it was it was such a beast you know it's uh because we we created a, a brand new moving fountain for it um that we've never used again but it is on that show it's a so it's not something we bought off the shelf we worked with a couple of different vendors um and our own internal design to design a whole new fountain platform basically and um, there was a lot of technologies and concepts that we came up just for that show just because of where it was. One example was that the we weren't going to replace the, the actual basin of the lagoon, the concrete. And because of that, we couldn't allow the entire weight of all the fountains to actually – it wouldn't support the weight of everything. So um, the technical director came up with the idea – that the uh, entire platform would float. So that entire show platform, which is broken up into three chunks, is buoyant. It's all, so the lagoon isn't actually carrying the weight of the entire system. It's actually floating. But yet the lagoon is carrying the weight of it. Yes, spread it, but not like as, it's not lifting it. You know, it's not pushing it up. There are uh, buoys under the entire system. So it's actually floating on air. Um, so it, it's not being pushed up by, you know, um, by pneumatic rams or anything. It's the, the rams are guiding it, but not actually like pushing it up, you know, in single points. I see. Across. Okay. Yeah. 
so there was that. There was the development of the fountain, um, the the system by which we control a fountain uh, is super high res, and and working out that protocol um, between Fisher at the time, Tate now, who did the show control system for it. Uh, they worked with MA so that we could directly use the MA network, uh, MA protocol, so they could get it into a different system that would then translate it and control the fountain um, to get our resolution up. So it averages the data a little bit more to smooth it out more than DMX would provide. You know, looking back, I would change it a little bit so I had dynamic control of that, so I could move them a lot faster. Because as it is right now, you can move it slower. But there is, there is, I can't increase the speed of what they go at right now just because of the way it averages the data. So um, I probably would have done that dynamic, you know, if I could go back and do it again. Basically, an M speed channel <laughs> for it. the fountains. I'm a fan of M speed channels. Yep, I know. That was a great thing about the Virtuoso is that it was hidden. Like that was the, one of the best features about the Virtuoso is that it, you it used the M speed channel. But it was hidden to you. So when yeah. you typed time three, it figured out what the timing was on the timing channel and used the timing in the fixture, which was brilliant, brilliant. So, yeah, the, as far as the development of that show goes, it, you know, working with Tate and honing in how the fountain worked um, and then also dealing with, you know, the MA2 and such an early version of, of software. Um there was a point where time codes still didn't work yet. And so we had a backup plan uh, getting into the start of programming whereby we were going to use on PC version one to send uh, time code triggers to the MA2 to play back cues. <laughs> and we never had to employ it, but we, we actually had, had a guy, who, uh, we had Matt Shimamoto at the time hired in temporarily just to sit there and, be prepared to write empty cues to trigger the MA2. Now we never had to do it. And like <laughs> a week before, literally a week before I started actually, before I made Q1, like MA dropped the version of software that actually had time code enabled. But okay. Yeah. I can only imagine that situation. I was like, oh, we, we need an MA1 programmer. Okay. How many fixtures? Am I? No, no fixtures. It's no fixtures. It's hundreds of cues, but no fixtures. <laughs> Well, and it went, to be fair, it was also, it was ACT offered, because they were like, we're so sorry that time comes out ready. Here, we're going to hire someone to sit in the control room just in case you need them. And, but again, like, you know, I, I felt that we needed the we needed the horsepower that the MA2 was going to provide for the show, uh, especially in regard to multi-programmer. Yeah. You know, I know the MA2 could do it as well, but we, 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 right off the bat, we had to have three programmers working concurrently and it ended up being four programmers sometimes working concurrently because we had, I was doing the fountains and the lighting attached to the fountains. Then we had a moving light programmer who was doing obviously the moving lights and anything that, and synchro lights and strobes and things like that. Um, and then a third programmer who was uh, running hippos. So, but all working, you know, uh, asynchronously at, at, at certain times and, um, there was also a loophole where you could receive MIDI time code as, a, as opposed and additionally LTC time code and then switch between the two. So I would use I would use LTC time code to program. And then one of the other two guys would uh, would use MIDI time code to to program as well so that they could be 
checking timing on their stuff while I was programming something else using another time code feed. And that was all on that first version of software we were using. I was able to do all that. So, um, but additionally, and how you said you had to find a keyboard and a, and a mouse to like reload software. I had one always ready to go because I was always reloading <laughs> software into the uh, seven NPUs that we had. We had seven MPUs, one, um, one, um, one playback, and three consoles that I was always updating. It seemed like every other week I was updating. <laughs> I was because that's how how quickly software was yeah. coming out. Call me crazy. In my opinion, I shouldn't need a box of accessories to do something as simple as update the software on a piece of lighting hardware. I know. I know. So true. <laughs> What work rules are you working under where like, you know, how long do you actually have on the, on the hardware every day and how restricted is that time? Well, you know, most of the time I'm working in a construction environment. So it comes down to, Hey, you can't be in there because they're grinding concrete today or, <laughs> you know, uh, so there's a lot of coordination of like, um, because sometimes we're all trying to step on each other. It's like, well, you know, media has the room today. Um, or audio has the room. Sometimes we can work together, but there's, you know, half the time we can't, or, you know, they're laying down new flooring, the painters are in, there's scaffolding that's built. You know, there's, there's a whole host of construction issues that get in the way sometimes where you just may not have access to it for weeks at a time, or you have to flop around schedules and work in the middle of the night when, you know, um, the, the general contractor is not in working on stuff. So, it, you know, it, it, it works out both ways where it, it can be kind of the same as Broadway, where it's just like, oh, there's not a lot of time. But thankfully, a lot of the time on this Disney stuff, uh, attractions, with the Disney attractions, we do end up having um, some, a lot of time to really get it right, which is good because we're going to leave it there for some years. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it isn't the case of like, okay, you really can only work from 10 to 12 on this day. Other than, because, because of work rules, it's just like, because people are in there. It's not, yeah, it's literally just because you can't, because there's scaffolding in the way, right? Got it. Or, or you know, half of the stuff I do for Disney is outside and needs to be nighttime, right? Yeah. How do you handle stuff that is an overlay or things like that, you know, where, where you're working on something that is in public view when the resort is open. Well, the, like the original world of color, we could only work when the park was closed. And back in the time, back in the day when we did world of color, a California adventure was not a very popular park. And so they closed at like 7 PM. So we would start working at like eight 30 when the park had cleared and then work until sunup. Now that was a long pride. We worked six days a week, you know, that many hours every day. It was, it was grueling. It was, it was totally grueling. Now when they do a show, you know, the park may not close till 10, so they don't get start started until like 1130. And then they only, and then they only program until 430 because they have to do maintenance on the system because they're not taking the show dark. Like the show's still operating at night in the, in the old version. So your programming time gets cut down to sometimes only like four hours a night and uh, places like Tokyo Disneyland, which is a very popular park. They'll keep the park open until 10 o'clock. Um, it doesn't clear until midnight or midnight 30. And then you have to be done by like six o'clock 
as they get the park ready to reopen. So, uh, well, not even that, not even six o'clock, whenever the sun comes up, because then you can't see anything anymore. So sometimes you only get three to four hours a night of, that you can actually like work on anything that is guest facing just because of access time and darkness. Got it. So a control framework wise for World of Color, for example, I, I noticed that that takes control over lighting on rides um, and in the in the area development and in the fountain. So does that replace? Does that interact with? Does that switch over from the existing control networks? It's both. So in that show in particular, uh, I'm an instance where I, pro I, I program the area development stuff for Imagineering. But then I was also doing the show for entertainment. So I had my hand in both the control systems. And the area development lighting, the way that we handle that is World of Color sends a trigger to the area development and says, it's showtime. Or no, we want to take control of the show. And so what happens is there's another controller that World of Color triggers that then takes over values for the area development lighting. So now they so we we programmed a, a separate controller that just has values that uh, World of Color is going to take control of. So they replace the data with that controller, and then they have full control of that controller to turn off the lighting, restore the lighting for the something like the Ferris wheel that's in the middle. Again, they send a trigger to it to tell it what show mode to go into, whether it should be prepared to receive time code or if it should go into one of several static looks. And then uh, in the case of a normal show, they say, all right, get ready to receive time code. And so it goes into a mode where it's in a static look and it gets ready to receive time code. And then uh, time code's received. And um, what I'll do is I'll program a show uh, on that controller that is synced to World of Color. So. It uses the built-in controller for the Ferris wheel, not from anything from World of Color, but it just listens to time code from the show to play back on its own controller. But then there are uh, some instances where like we have some color changing stuff that's on the roller coaster where we've given World of Color, the World of Color system, direct control of the RGB values for all that stuff. And in that case, it's just an HTP thing where um, they actually send a trigger to the controller that turns off its look, and then and then they just pile on. And then what about iPhone cameras? Uh, how much time are you spending making sure that everything is going to photograph well or video well? Not at all. For World of Color, not at all. Like that wasn't even a consideration for me on that show. Um, the last show I did there was Season of Light, which was their holiday show um, about three years ago, four years ago. And uh, that show for me was the most complicated one because I had already done a bunch of versions of that show up to that point. And so at that point, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think of different ways to use the system. And uh, we added some new lighting on that show as well. And working together uh, with my friend, Matt McAdam, as a line designer, together, we really spent time on trying to craft these really pretty, rich, dark looks. And so um, because of that, and we we're trying to push how that show looked to be um, as rich and as uh, visually interesting as possible and try, try and break the mold from the other shows we've done, that I wasn't, I wasn't even considering 
iPhones because I wasn't lighting for iPhones. I was lighting for whoever was going to watch that show in person. And uh, additionally, I feel that any, anyone who wanted to really tape that show should just know their phones well enough to be able to, to capture it because I wasn't as concerned about how it was going to look on YouTube because with the case of attractions and big spectaculars like that, it's all about not watching it on YouTube, but actually experiencing it. That's like when you like see videos of rise of the resistance, like it doesn't do it justice at all to actually riding the attraction itself. Like, Watching videos of it is not going to give it give you the idea of like what it actually is in life. Same thing with World of Color. You don't appreciate how big that system is until you're sitting in front of it and realize that it's bigger than a football field and it, you know it all changes color and all is doing lighting. So, um, not too concerned with that on that show. Got it. So, I mean, has that has that changed at all in the intervening years? No, not for those spectacular shows, you know, like, because, again, those shows are designed for you to come to the park and see it in person. Do you have any final thoughts? Do you have any, any other things you wanted to hit or mention or talk about? I guess what I would want to throw out into the into the wild is that uh, for anyone who's in the lighting business, we need more programmers. <laughs> um I know that, that there's a lot of people who, who go in the mindset that I would just like to be a line designer and I want to figure this all out. But you have to know that being a programmer as well, you really do help achieve lighting design in, in, a, in a lot more ways than you, than, than you can imagine. So I would say to anyone who's in lighting, it's like, don't discount being a lighting programmer, um, especially because we're always looking for programmers. We want, we're always looking for people who are, are not only uh, uh, design gifted, but technology gifted, to, you know, and the thing about programming is you put those together is that you are a designer when you're a programmer. And so um, it's, it's basically, it's a plea that uh, consider programming <laughs> before you, you write it off and, and decide to only be a designer because, uh, because, there's not a lot of us out there, it seems, these days. Okay. In that case, Jason, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for giving me so much time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.